0: The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com.
1: We'll be taking a break from our journey through Genesis this morning and looking instead at two passages of Scripture. The first is Acts 6, one through six and it says now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The second passage is 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. And it says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, They must hold the ministry of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve... Well, as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word.
0: Thank you, Joe. Let's pray together. Father, we're taught that The heavens and earth will pass away, but that your words will never pass away, Scripture says. They're eternally true, eternally relevant, and eternally powerful. And so please, Lord, help us to see the truth of this text and understand its relevance and experience its power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the ways I often like to view the Bible is as an owner's manual for our lives. Um, I'm sure, as most of you know, the point of an owner's manual is to teach us how to operate something or maintain a certain product in the best possible way. So for example, at our church's uh, oil change event that we had a couple of Saturdays ago, I would imagine that those changing the oil would look at the owner's manual of those vehicles before they would put the oil in in order to determine how much oil that vehicle needed because each vehicle takes a specific amount of oil and it's not good for the vehicle to put too much or too little oil into it. And so whenever you're doing something like that, it's always a good idea to look at the owner's manual and follow whatever that says because things just work out better when you do that and uh, as I said the bible is a lot like an owner's manual for our lives so life just usually works better when we live the way God's told us to live in the pages of scripture so just think about something like marriage for example how can we have a marriage that is uh, healthy and harmonious and happy? well it's by following the, the the principles for marriage and for relationships that we find in the Bible or you know take mental wellness as another example. Now I'm not saying we won't ever struggle with uh, mental health issues if we follow the Bible, but Generally speaking, living the way God instructs us to live uh, helps us to have a greater sense of joy and peace and comfort and fulfillment in our lives, even in the midst of challenging circumstances. So things just generally work out better in every aspect of life if we follow the owner's manual. And what's true of our lives individually Is also true of the church. Things just work out best when we, as a church, follow the owner's manual and seek to organize the church according to the pattern we find in the New Testament. And one of the features of the New Testament church is that it had two offices. The first office was elders, also known as pastors who were responsible for being the primary leaders and teachers in the church. Yet there was also a second office as well, one that we haven't yet officially established here at Redeeming Grace, and that is the office of deacons. The Greek word translated as deacon is diakonos and simply means servant. Servant. It was a very general term that could be used to refer to any servant in any part of ancient society. But it could also be used in a more particular way to refer to a specific office in the church. So today we might compare it to the term White House. Right? There, there might be a lot of houses that could accurately be described as white houses. Houses, right? You might live in a White House or at least have one on your street. And yet we all understand that there's only one official White House, the one in Washington, D.C. So, similarly, in the New Testament, the word diakonos is sometimes used in a very general way to refer to any servant in society, but in other instances, it's used in a particular way to refer to an official servant or a designated model servant, we might say, in the church. And so since the New Testament church had deacons, and since our young fledgling church doesn't yet have deacons, we've been thinking maybe we should appoint some. And so that's why we're taking a break from our journey through the book of Genesis this morning, and I'm preaching this message. And as we look at the New Testament, it seems as though deacon ministry originated not long after the church itself was born in the book of Acts. In Acts 6, we read about a challenging situation that the early church encountered. Uh, Verse 1 tells us that in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So basically, a certain group of widows in the church was being neglected and overlooked in the church's food distribution ministry. That was the issue. So how did the leaders of the church respond to that issue? Well, look at verses 2 through 6. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples, the the whole church, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we, leaders, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, one thing to understand about this passage is that the noun diakonos from which we get the word deacon, is never applied to these seven men or even used in the passage at all. However, the corresponding verb diakoneo is applied to what they do. Uh, The apostles state in verse 2, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve right diakoneo tables. So these seven men aren't called deacons per se, but the text does say that they'll engage in deaconing or serving in the church. And also, we have to remember that all of this was very early on in the life of the church. Things were still incredibly fluid at this point, and almost everything was in the process of being developed. So I believe it's best to think of these men in Acts chapter 6 not as deacons per se, but simply as men who engaged in a deacon-type ministry, Uh, proto-deacons, if you will. And that's significant because it means there's not really a specific job description for deacons in the New Testament. Now, if we did view these men in Acts 6 as deacons, we might be more likely to conclude that deacons should focus their attention on mercy ministry. But since I'm not really convinced that what we see here in Acts 6 is a mature deacon ministry, I believe the New Testament leaves the question of what deacons should do pretty open. Basically, it's appropriate for deacons to serve in whatever ways the congregation and specifically the elders need them to serve. So it might be a food distribution ministry like we see in Acts 6 or literally any other ministry that's needed in the church. Uh, One principle that I really appreciate from Acts 6 is that the church is free to organize things in whatever way seems most beneficial and to make the most sense given the situation of that particular church in that particular season. As John MacArthur writes in his commentary on this passage, Uh, Biblical church organization always responds to needs and to what the Holy Spirit is already doing. Organization, he writes, is never an end in itself, but only a means to facilitate what the Lord is doing in his church. So again, it seems like deacon ministry in the New Testament is meant to be an incredibly flexible ministry that churches are free to utilize and structure as they see fit to meet the needs they currently have. Then later on in the New Testament, once deacon ministry had taken on a more mature form, the Apostle Paul lists the qualifications for deacons in 1 Timothy 3, 8-12. He writes that deacons must likewise be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. and Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Now, one notable feature of these qualifications that should stick out to all of us is that these qualifications focus on a person's character rather than on their giftedness. Character is front and center when it comes to the question of who should be appointed to deacon ministry. And by the way, there's a very important principle in there for all of us, and that is that God cares way more about the kind of person you are than he does about the kinds of things you're able to do. God cares way more about you having godly character than he does about you having impressive abilities. In addition, as we go through these qualifications, keep in mind that although these are presented as qualifications for deacons, there are also qualities that we should all seek to imitate and to exhibit. The kind of person described here is a model of what all of us should seek to be. So the first qualification is that deacons be dignified or uh, worthy of respect, as some translations say. Uh, This means they should show a a certain level of seriousness in their devotion to the Lord. People should be able to look up to them as model servants. In addition, Paul says that deacons uh, can't be double-tongued. They can't say one thing to one person, but then turn around and say something different and contradictory to someone else. Instead, they should be truthful and trustworthy in all their interactions. Uh, I really like the way one commentator elaborates on this qualification. He says that a deacon shouldn't be afraid to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. That's a rather memorable way of describing it, I guess. Uh, Moreover, uh, deacons mustn't be addicted to much wine. doesn't mean they can't drink alcohol at all, but it does mean they shouldn't be controlled by it or get drunk on any occasion. Instead, they should be self-controlled, not only in this aspect of life, but in every aspect of life. Uh, Paul then states that they shouldn't be greedy for dishonest gain. Instead, he says in verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Uh, The mystery of the faith is a phrase that Paul uses numerous times in his letters to refer to the gospel. The message of who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross to redeem us from our sins. So deacons have to genuinely believe all of those core teachings of the gospel. Even though they aren't required to be able to teach as elders are required to to do, they still need to have a solid grasp of gospel truths. Paul then says in verse 10 that they should also be tested first and only be allowed to serve if they show themselves blameless. He then says in verse 12 that deacons need to relate to their family in an exemplary way. And that involves being faithful to their spouse and also managing their children well. And by the way, I don't believe that this means that they have to be married or that they have to have children. Instead, Paul's simply assuming here that most deacons probably will be married and will have children. So he's assuming it, but not requiring it. And uh, believe it or not, these two passages that we've seen, Acts chapter 6 and 1 Timothy 3, actually represent most of the data in the entire New Testament on deacons. Uh, there are a couple of other passing references to deacons in the New Testament, but there isn't really any other substantive teaching about deacons That we're given. And so, based on the limited amount of information we have about deacons, here's what I believe we can say about them. If you're taking notes, feel free to write this down as our main idea. Deacons in the New Testament functioned as model servants who assisted the elders with various forms of practical ministry. Again, deacons in the New Testament functioned as model servants who assisted the elders with various forms of practical ministry. So basically, the elders delegate certain responsibilities to deacons, usually responsibilities that are of a more practical nature, so that the elders themselves are freed up to focus the majority of their attention on more foundational ministry, such as prayer and Bible teaching. As the church elders say in Acts 6-4, but we... As elders, we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the role of deacons is to take care of any responsibility in the life of the church that threatens to distract the elders from their primary responsibility of looking after the church's spiritual welfare. So in that sense, deacons are kind of like the offensive lineman, right? Whose job it is to protect the quarterback, So without deacons, the elders would be overwhelmed with all kinds of different responsibilities and demands on their time that would, in a manner of speaking, sack them and prevent them from engaging in the ministry God's given them. And that, I mean, really wouldn't be good for anyone. The elders of the church need to be able to focus their attention on things that are the most foundational, like Prayer and Bible teaching. Because just like with a physical building, if the foundation isn't right, nothing else in that building is going to be right. Right? The whole structure will be unsound if the foundation isn't laid properly. So it's the job of the elders to continuously make sure that the church is being built on a solid biblical foundation as a means of facilitating all the other practical things that take place and so deacons have a critical ministry in the church and as i mentioned the, the new testament seems to be deliberately vague about the exact responsibilities deacons are supposed to have so that churches are free to utilize deacons in whatever ways make the most sense for that particular church in that particular season. And for our church, we as elders are still working through uh, and ironing out what exactly we would like deacons to do. Uh, Part of that depends on who we end up appointing as deacons and what their giftedness is and what their abilities are. Uh, But a few of the positions that we're considering just as possibilities would be a deacon of building and grounds, for example, a deacon of hospitality, Um, a deacon of finance, uh, a deacon of guest experiences, a deacon of congregational care, a deacon of benevolence, and a few additional possibilities as well. And uh, as we consider specific positions like these, one of the questions that often comes up is whether women uh, can be deacons as well, or what we might more accurately call deaconesses. And you should know there are different views about that, even among those that we would consider to be faithful, Bible-believing Christians. And as we think about that question, we have to acknowledge that there's just not a lot of data in the New Testament for us to go off of. So I'm not sure there's conclusive proof either way. However, I would like to argue that the burden of proof is on those who would say that the office of deacon should be off limits to women. So they're the ones who who have to prove their position. And uh, that goes for any ministry in the church. Like if you want to say that any ministry is off limits to women or to any other group for that matter, then it's on you to demonstrate that from the bible so for example if you wanted to argue let's say i don't know that a woman a woman couldn't operate the powerpoint for the sunday morning worship service then i would say okay but it's it's on you to actually prove that demonstrate that rule from the bible because otherwise it's just legalism right it's not just being cautious that's that would be legalism trying to enforce rules that aren't clear in scripture is a form of legalism. So unless there's clear evidence, not an absence of evidence, but, a, but clear evidence in the Bible that the office of deacon should be limited to men, then I believe it would be inappropriate for us to prohibit women from serving in that role. And uh, by the way, that's not just my view personally, but I think all of our elders uh, would hold that unanimously. Now, in the case of the office of the elder, it's different because there we do have clear biblical evidence that prohibits women from serving in that role. I don't have time to explain that completely, but just to state the, the prohibition, Paul clearly says in 1 Timothy 2:12, uh, "I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man uh, with the implied context of the local church." So in that case, it's not legalistic for us to limit the office of elder to qualified men because there's clear biblical evidence for that prohibition. However, it would be legalistic for us to limit the office of deacon to men since there isn't biblical evidence for that. And by the way, for anyone who might be wondering whether Paul's prohibition in 1 Timothy 2.12 of women exercising authority over men in the church would mean that women can't be deacons, Uh, I don't think that's the case because, strictly speaking, deacons uh, don't exercise authority. Rather, they simply coordinate and administrate ministry initiatives under the direction and the authority of the elders, right? So the elders are the ones exercising authority, while the role of deacons or deaconesses is limited to carrying out the directives of the elders. So, you know, even now, if you know, any of you men is maybe carrying in some food from a, a woman who's uh, brought the after-church snack for us and she tells you to you know put the food over there, don't worry, brother, right? <laughs> She's not exercising authority over you. It's all right. <laughs> You're clear to put the food where she tells you to, put the decorations where she tells you to, In good conscience right and uh, the same goes for female deacons as well right nothing in scripture that prohibits them from coordinating and administrating ministry efforts as deaconesses with the understanding that the authority lies in the elders and in fact not only is there a lack of teaching in the bible that women should be prohibited from the office of deacon i would say there are actually some subtle indications that there were female deacons in the New Testament church. You may have noticed as we were going through the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3, that we skipped verse 11. In verse 11, in the middle of Paul's list of deacon qualifications, he says something about women. And the ESV, somewhat unfortunately in this case, translates it this way. Their wives must... Likewise, be dignified, not slanders, not super, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Right? So they're wives, it says. However, it's important to understand that the Greek word translated wives there is gune, which is just the generic term for an adult woman. So a more literal translation would be the, uh, the way the NASB translates the verse, which is that women must... Likewise be dignified. And uh, that, of course, um, could either refer to a woman who were to women who were the wives of deacons or to women who were deacons or deaconesses themselves. Uh, The word gune is simply a generic word referring to adult women and could easily be interpreted either way. And I think we should have a PowerPoint slide for that, for the NASB translation of um, verse 11 there. One more, one more up. There we go, NASB. Uh, And so the word gune is simply the generic word, could be translated either way, as you can see in the Numerican Standard. So what do we do here, this generic word? Well, we look at the context. And as we look at the context, I believe it's very likely that gune here... Is indeed a reference not to the wives of deacons, but to deaconesses. And uh, because you'll notice that in the previous passage, as Paul was looking and, and listing the qualifications for elders, that, what didn't he mention? He, he didn't mention elders' wives. So if the office of elders is, you know, we might say a higher office in the church, and Paul didn't mention anything about elders' wives, then why would he mention anything about the wives of deacons? So it would be very strange indeed for Paul to require something for the wives of deacons that he didn't require for the wives of elders. In addition, a widely respected New Testament scholar named Tom Schreiner points out that the word gune in verse 11 lacks any, we're getting a little grammatical here, but possessive pronouns. Explain that, even though translations like the ESV insert the possessive pronoun "their" right, "their" at the beginning of the sentence, so it reads more smoothly. Right, their wives. That word "their" actually isn't present in the Greek manuscripts. So verse 11 in the original Greek doesn't say "their gune" but simply "gune." Right. Now, if Paul had in fact wanted to talk about the wives of deacons, we would expect him to say their wives. That would certainly be a more natural way of referring to them. That's why the ESV puts it in there, because it's so natural. However, Paul doesn't do that. He just starts talking about women without any grammatical attempt to specify that he's talking about the wives of deacons. And then furthermore, going on to another uh, verse... It's also worth noting that in Romans 16.1, Paul refers to a woman named Phoebe as a diakonos of the church at Cancrate. So even though the ESV translates diakonos as servant, we've already discussed right how diakonos often has a more particular meaning in the New Testament and often refers to the office of deacon. So translated literally... Paul refers to Phoebe as a deacon of the church at Cancrate without any caveat or attempt to keep people from misunderstanding her position. So again, just to sum up, I know it's been a lot, but to sum it up, right, if you've been zoning out, I know this has been a little dense and meticulous, but to bring it back here, I realize that none of these arguments prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that the Apostle Paul supported female deacons, but Um, I believe that what we have in the New Testament are simply some subtle indications that there were probably female deacons, rather than any definitive proof that there were. However, here's the key. As I mentioned, I don't think I actually need to give definitive proof, because I believe the burden of proof is on those who would, um, uh, not on those who would allow female deacons, but rather on those who wish to prohibit them. So I pray that the Lord would raise up faithful men and women to be deacons and deaconesses here at Redeeming Grace. And as an encouragement for those whom God might be calling to serve in such a role, let me remind you of what Paul says right after listing the qualifications for deacons in 1 Timothy 3. He states in verse 13, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. You know, it's true that most of the things involved in deacon ministry are more behind-the-scenes kinds of things and usually aren't very glamorous. But deacons can take heart. At this promise Paul gives it has two components first you'll obtain a good standing in the church you'll be respected and appreciated in the church for the ministry that you do also Paul says you'll gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus in other words your faithful service in the church gives you greater assurance that your faith in Jesus is genuine and that you'll therefore enjoy immense heavenly rewards. So even though deacon ministry may not be glamorous, there's certainly a sense in which it's glorious. In addition, one thing for all of us to remember is that, friends, you'll never be more like Jesus than when you're serving other people. You'll never be more like Jesus than when you're serving others, whether it's in the official capacity of deacons or any other capacity. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 20, 25 through 28. His disciples were jockeying amongst themselves uh, for a high position, and so he tells them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man, that would be Jesus himself, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus observes how the Gentiles, which in this context uh, refers to people who aren't yet Christians, they're often filled with selfish ambition and love to be exalted over other people, right? They want glory, they want power, they want others to serve them. And you know, that's probably true for all of us, Even if we don't secretly desire to be the... CEO of some Fortune 500 company or the next president of the United States, I can just about guarantee that we like the idea of other people serving us, right? That's that's what makes a nice hotel so nice, right? We like to be pampered. We like other people making our beds and cleaning up after us and cooking our food. It's wonderful, Yet Jesus says that's not the mentality we should have for our regular day-to-day lives. Instead of seeking to exalt ourselves and have other people serve us, we should seek to serve them. That's what true greatness looks like. And the model for that is Jesus himself. Jesus, he says, came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So the ultimate servant is Jesus himself. And the ultimate act of service is his death on the cross to pay for our sins. When we were condemned in our sins and enslaved to our own sinful desires and thoroughly wretched and vile, and undeserving of anything good. In fact, of God's punishment, <laughs> Jesus died in our place. In reality, we should have been the ones to suffer the penalty for our sins, but Jesus stood in our place. He suffered the penalty for our sins so that we wouldn't have to face it. Then, after he died, Jesus resurrected from the dead to show that the father had indeed accepted his sacrifice as payment for sin. And the result is that Jesus now stands ready to save everyone who will put their trust in him as their only and sufficient savior. Right? He's got his arms wide open Fighting us to do that. And so the ultimate model for deacon ministry is Jesus himself. And of course, Jesus could have come to this earth demanding that we serve him. And that would have actually been entirely appropriate since Jesus, after all, is the Lord of this universe. But he didn't do that. Instead, amazingly, Jesus came, as he says, not to be served, but to serve. And yes, the Greek word behind those words served and "serve" there is indeed, you might have guessed it, diakoneo. So we could translate this verse as saying that Jesus came not to be deaconed, but to deacon so deacon ministry in the church is modeled after Jesus himself. He is the church's first and greatest deacon. And deacon ministry today is all about imitating his example. And of course, we could say the same thing about all of the ways in which people serve in the church. So that's how this servant is relevant to you. Like, even if... You don't have a deacon title. God still invites you to imitate Jesus by serving others in meaningful ways. Whether it's through children's ministry or cleaning the church on the cleaning team or discipling someone or whatever it is. Most of these positions usually aren't very glamorous, but they are eternally significant as expressions of worship to God and love for other people so hopefully we can all make it our ambition to serve one another because again you're never you'll never be more like Jesus
1: than when you're serving other people